Welcome back to Money for Everyone. I'm Megan. I'm Eric. And today's episode is going to be about consolidating any debt that you do have or possibly refinancing it. So to get this episode started, I am going to read off just the definition of refinancing for people who don't know what refinancing is, because I remember not too many years ago, maybe five, six years ago, hearing it on the radio saying, come to this bank and refinance your debt. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. So (laughs) refinancing is the replacement of an existing debt obligation with another debt obligation under different terms. So to kick off the episode, I'm going to ask Eric here, what debt consolidation have you done, if any, or refinancing have you done? Yeah. So great question, Megan. And I know this, this might not be the most exciting topic to talk about, right? We're getting down into more the nuts and bolts when it comes to financing, but this is really important, right? Especially when you just graduated college and you were looking to buy a house in the next couple of years and you start racking up a lot of debt. And that's just the reality of being young, being in your early twenties, um, getting into relationships and having a lot of, you know, debt pile up. It can get really confusing, right? I remember when I was back in college, I had to take out a private student loan. I had public student loans through FAFSA. And each loan was a new loan every single semester because you got a certain amount of money for every semester you went to school. So those loans are individual. It's like, if you were to use an analogy, it's like a forest of trees, right? And you plant different trees for every single loan you take out. And what these financial institutions will do is have you pay interest first. So if you can imagine the trees, it's the top level of the branches, right? And they're going to make you pay that first. But what debt consolidation is, is essentially taking all of those trees and make it into one gigantic tree, which one interest rate that you have. And that way you can streamline your payments that you make on the student loan debt or in the student loan payments. So when I consolidated my loans, I had about like, I want to say like seven separate loans that I all consolidated. Wow. And you can look at whatever financial institution that you got your debt from a lot of people, it's going to be FASA, right from the US government. And that's where I looked at several options. So I remember Back when I graduated, they gave me this like huge gigantic packet about this is how you manage your FAFSA. Here's repayments. And there's different payment structures too. But I I think the most important part to know is take it one step at a time. Right. And this is really the first step. And for me, it was always an organizational thing. I didn't want to make separate payments on all these various loans because the interests that you're paying on them over time, you're probably going to be paying more if you're just making small payments towards multiple different loans that you have. And ultimately, the financial institutions will, I don't want to say rig it, but <laughs> they design it in a way where you actually pay more over the course of the life of the loan when it's separate versus consolidated. So Mm -hmm. you can go to any financial institution and you can say, hey, I want to consolidate these loans. And what they do is they essentially purchase the debt, which is an asset to the U.S. government. They will end up purchasing that debt because that's an asset for them. They make money off of it. They will bunch all of the different loans into one 
separate debt. Mm-hmm. And that you just make payments on one single interest rate that can be fixed or variable. And that's exactly what I did. I did it through, I think, Great Lakes Financial, which is one of the one of the financial institutions that the U.S. government uh, recommended for debt consolidations. But to anybody out there that has FASA, I would highly recommend doing this. You can go on their website. You can quickly search how to consolidate loans. There's YouTube videos, there's uh, Google at your disposal. It's not that hard of a process, but it pays off in the end. It it really, really does. So now I only have my private loan um, that's nearly paid off and then my public student loans that I have a one fixed interest rate on um, that I'm continuously making payments. I have one payment amount every single month that there is a minimum, right? And they'll mm-hmm. ask you, hey, when do you want these loans to be paid off? 10 years, 20 years, and then your payment mm. differs every single month depending on your goal of paying it off. And my trick is to have my loan payments very small and say, let's say I, I want to pay them off in 10 years. I think that's what what I put the payment's going to be small, but then you can also make additional payments on the principal. So you're starting to chop down the gigantic tree that you created with the consolidations of the loans. So that's that's a quick and dirty way of understanding my strategy, but it's not. it, it seems very complicated, right? Mm-hmm. And it seems like you're probably going to get very conflicting opinions to talk to, but that's my personal belief and that's my personal way of handling finances is always consolidate your student loans. And I'm going to pass it off to Megan because I know she has more experience with refinancing. So Megan, have you ever refinanced a loan? And if you have, what was the process and what did that look like? Yeah. So actually back in September of 2020, my husband and I refinanced our mortgage When we bought this house, we weren't very smart about it. We didn't do a large down payment at all. And so we got an okay interest rate. If you look at interest rates over the course of the last hundred years or so, um, we were at 4.75% interest for our mortgage and it was a 30 year loan. And then we realized that we could refinance during the pandemic here because interest rates are at an all-time low right now. And that's the key reason why I wanted to make this episode now, because right now, interest rates are not going to get any lower. I can almost guarantee you for the rest of our life, they're never going to be lower than they are right now. Um, obviously, I can't 100% guarantee that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and people are getting mortgage loans now for 2%, just ridiculously low amounts. So we refinanced before they hit, they bottomed out. I think they're kind of bottoming out now. And we, so we got a 3.125% on our mortgage now when we refinanced back in September, um, because we also didn't put that big of a down payment down again this time. The life of our mortgage loan is only going to be 15 years now instead of 30. So we've cut it in half and our loan payment only went up $200. So for $200 extra a month, we're paying our mortgage off in 15 years instead of 30. And how we did that is the mortgage rep that we went through to when we bought the house originally, we just reached out to her again, said, hey, we are looking at refinancing and 
they will rock you right through it. And you can do it all online now, all electronically. And you may need to physically go into a business, like a a local title company to finish up some actual paperwork. But I think with the pandemic, they've changed that up in some ways. Because I think they do need to ask for your identification just to make sure you are who you say you are and that sort of thing. But yeah, I definitely recommend if you have a mortgage right now or student loans to definitely go to the financial institution of your choice. Um, Or if you have a banker that you normally work with or in our case, the certain mortgage representative that we worked with, then go to them and they'll walk you through it. And it's honestly not that hard and it'll save you. I mean, we're saving just by doing that. I think it was $75,000 in interest. So we're saving ourselves $75,000. So wow. Yeah, it's, it's worth it. (laughs) So, and yeah, I would say do it now while the pandemic's going on and interest rates are this low. I'm sure they'll slowly start to climb back up. 25,000. That's uh that's like a Tesla Roadster right there. <laughs> that's a lot to do, right? And it is. I think what's important to know too is that $75,000 savings isn't realized right away. No. Right? Because it's what you're avoiding in compound interest payments over time as the loan matures and as the interest rate, obviously you're paying on interest first on a mortgage. That's how they're designed. And then you're paying more towards of the principal at the end. So actually the amount of the house grows over time just as your debt grows because the interest is building up because you're not paying off principal right away. Yep. So that's why it's important to when you do decide to buy a house or in my um, in my experience, getting an auto loan, that interest rate is really important because that principal is so big. Yeah. And if you think about it like this, debt to us is an asset to the financial institutions, just like assets to us, investments. Let's say you're gonna invest in the stock market and your money is growing. That's how these financial institutions view your debt. It works both ways. So I want everybody to look at their finances from this perspective, right? Because you can make money in the stock market, but also you can save money by consolidating and by refinancing all of your debt because you're slimming and you're actually cutting down the amount of interest that you're paying, which is the exact same thing as gaining dollars in the stock market and watching your investments grow over time. Yep. So if you're really smart with this, you can actually play both sides. Like Megan's Mm -hmm. saving $75,000 is the same thing as having that $75,000 in the bank right now in a 401k. Well, not in a 401k because it's growing, (laughs) but she's going to realize that over a course of time, over the next 20, 25 years, right? It may not be actually physical dollars, but the amount of money that she's spending on the loan is going to be $75,000 less, which is the exact same thing as growing your money and having your interest build up on financial assets and investments grow at 75000 So yeah. it's it really, really important. You can take a look, at, and I know there's some uh, theories out there once you have student debt. It's like, what do you do first? Do you invest or do you try to pay off your debt right away? Right. 
And mm -hmm. I think this is a great opportunity for Megan and I to talk about interest rates and to talk about how interest rates affect your financial situation, because this is something that was new to me the last like three to four years that I didn't know the power of compound interest. And this is so, this is probably the most important part uh, of, of personal finance is the power of compound interest. And they say if you start a 401k when you're in your 20s, that over time, over the course of 30, 40 years, when you go to look to take it out and liquidate the 401k when you're retired, the opportunity for you to be a millionaire is almost guaranteed at 7% annual, you know, whatever your 401k is invested in. But if you wait and invest when you're 30, you are going to lose out on 10 years of compound interest because if you put $100 in your 401k and it's growing at 7% over 10 years, it's not going to be worth what's, you know, it's not going to be worth $1,000. It's going to be worth $100, 107 and then it keeps growing exponentially over the course of that 10 years. Picture a snowball on top of a mountain. It's how compound interest works. Your principal gets larger, you reinvest it. And over the course of 10 years, that amount can be so great. And then it keeps growing and growing and growing. So if you just put 100 in when you're 20 versus 100 in when you're 30, the difference is astronomical. Same thing with debt. If you can yep. limit the amount of debt that you have when you're 20, when you're 30, you will pay so much less when you're 40 and 50, especially yep. on a mortgage, especially on student debt. So this is why this topic is so important and why we're so passionate about it. Plus, historically, we are at a time in the U.S. economy that interest rates are so low, right? And interest yep. rates are low and Correct me if I'm wrong, Megan, the U.S. government will set the benchmark interest rate, right? The Fed chair sets the benchmark interest rate. Yep. Right. And so they do that and they wanted to keep it low to encourage individuals to borrow, right? They're incentivizing more uh, spending within the economy to keep it running. Yep. To avoid inflation, right? And so... Interest rates are really, really low. It's a great opportunity for everybody listening to take a look. And I think that's the challenge for this week for all of our listeners is if you have any amount of student debt, mortgages, uh, auto loans, take a look and start, you know, put 30 minutes aside this weekend or sometime this week and just research, how, you know, where should I start in terms of consolidating? Where should I start in terms of refinancing? What is the opportunity? Get in contact with someone. Get in contact with your local bank. Shop around because it, it these small these small um, decisions and priorities right now is going to pay off so much for you guys in the long term. And this is such a good opportunity for you guys to do it right now. Yeah, sometimes it makes more sense to actually pay off your debt rather than invest. I know we talked um, in our first episode about investing and if your interest rate on whatever debt it may be, maybe it's a credit card, definitely pay that debt off first if it has an interest rate of more than like 5% in my opinion. You should pay that off first before you even start investing because the average return on an investment, like I said, is around 7%, but it can be down to five. It can be a negative return. It can be 20%. It just varies because it's invested. 
So, but overall, over like the course of 30 years, it'll probably be around like 7%. Like I said, if you're invested in a moderate portfolio. So if you have something, or I'm sorry, if you have a debt that is, has a greater interest rate than what you would make off of it being invested. So if the debt is more than, you know, that 5%, 6%, 7% interest you could be making, you definitely want to pay that off because that's going to save you way more money in the long run rather than investing that money. Exactly. And that's, that's a great point. And that's a philosophy that I follow because I right now have a hard goal of paying off all my debt in three years. Mm-hmm. And that, that's going to be a challenge, but I, I'm definitely on my way there and I'm tracking towards it. Instead of taking my additional savings and investing it into the stock market using Robinhood or and I have a Roth IRA, but maxing out that Roth IRA in max contributions, I'm focusing on paying off all my debt. Yeah. Right. And I, my interest rates on my student loans are rather low. Mm-hmm. So maybe I am giving up a, a, a little bit of interest and maybe I am going to, you know, not gain as much in investing early on. But it's so important to me to be debt free. Yeah. I think that is that it is very, very liberating once you can say that you're debt free. Mm-hmm. And I think my earning potential over the course of my career is going to be fine enough to where there's going to be another bull market. And I'm honestly waiting. And, and Megan, this is something I envy from you with your strategy <laughs> is I really wish I would have invested in March of last year. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, and I just didn't I didn't pull the trigger for whatever reason because of that philosophy. I'm just like, oh, this might be the beginning of a bear market. And this might be, you know, no one really knew what the hell mm-hmm. was going on. Oh, yeah. Like, that I was just dumb luck. Back. <laughs> I know. I, I remember being in the office back at Gartner and my friend was sitting right next to me who's big into finance. He was a finance major at Winona State. And we just saw the Dow drop like 800 mm-hmm. points. Yeah. Which... Now, industrial average is the top 30 like it, it, manufacturing companies. It's a good measure of gross domestic product and mm-hmm. how well the U.S. economy is going. And yep. when it drops, I would say 300 points, it makes news. So yep. an 800 point drop is like numbers you would see back in 2008 during the financial crisis. Actually, yeah, I remember what the day that happened because I work for two financial advisors, so we obviously keep an eye on the stock market. (laughs) So I was in our Red Wing office the day it happened, and I remember my boss up there, he likes to keep the news on, and I saw like Dow fell like 800 points in a day, and I was like, no way. And it said like biggest market crash since... Black Monday, 1987. And I was like, holy shit. And I was just, and I was like, oh my God, I remember I pulled up my investments and I lost like three grand and I was like, oh my God. (laughs) And, but I remember telling myself, I'm like, Megan, this is why you read all those books right before this. You know that this happens. You need to stay invested and start shoveling it in. And so then I just kept investing like I normally did. And now we're like way ahead because now the market has recovered and it's been great. So that was just kind of luck. Yeah, it was crazy to see. And fun fact, this is random, but my parents actually started dating on Black Monday in 1987. It's um, no way. Yeah. October 19th, 1987. They started dating that day. And it's one of the biggest market crashes in history. (laughs) So I always think of that because money. So let's uh Let's start dating. 
I think that's a great idea. <laughs> well, like I always think of it because um, in the Wolf of Wall Street, they have that day and it pops up October 19th, 1987 in the Wolf of Wall Street. I'm like, that's the day my parents started dating. <laughs> I was just about to mention that because anybody that doesn't know what Black Monday is, they can reference Wolf of Wall Street. Yes. They know exactly what day it was. And it's it's crazy because they shut down the stock market that day. Mm-hmm. Everybody was selling and that's what they do. They can shut the market down mm-hmm. at any point. You can say no buying, no trading, no selling of anything because everybody's just panic selling and then it's going to create another great depression, you know? So, but I thought that's really what was going to happen a year ago. I I thought this was Armageddon because they've been saying for the last 10 or the last couple years that we're in a bubble, Mm -hmm. that we are in some sort of bull market that cannot sustain itself, that everything's overvalued and that the bottom is going to fall out eventually, just like in 2008. Mm-hmm. it didn't happen it fell off for like a couple weeks but mm-hmm. with the power of individual investors and robin hood and everybody else that saw the opportunity like megan here and for idiots like me who didn't see the opportunity <laughs> and just didn't pull the trigger at the time um the market grew what 25 percent like the yeah S&P's it's insane up. yeah it's insane you can look you can google it and look at the the numbers when it hit the lowest point in march and now where the s&p sits at like four i think four thousand maybe even higher than that it's insane the amount of the market growth that we've seen in the last 12 months um that's a tangent for probably another episode that we can get into (laughs) i actually yeah i have a question then that i wanted to answer that one of our listeners sent in that kind of relates to what we've went over today. So I just thought it'd be good to throw it in at the end here. So our listener asked, what is your opinion on where someone should store their short-term savings for something like a house slash car? Example, savings account, money market, index fund, etc." And I don't know if you want to start with your answer on that question, Eric. Yeah. And this is going to be a famous answer that everybody gives in some of these situations. It depends. It really depends. It depends on what you're saving for. It depends how expensive that is. It depends on your income. It depends on a lot of variables, guys. But I think what makes the most sense in terms of short-term investing is you have to look at to see what's liquid, right? And liquidity is just how quickly you can transfer an asset to money. So yes. stocks are very liquid because you can sell stocks and then instantly get the money from it. So in terms, let's say you're, you're saving for a car or the example he said, I think it was like a short term savings goal of like buying a car, correct? Yeah. He said house slash car, short term savings, short term savings. I mean, you can always invest, you can open up a, like an E-Trade account or even like Robinhood and put it in a low risk, uh, mutual fund or an ETF. Because you know that's low risk, you're going to get a, a decent amount of return on it depending on the ETF and depending on the portfolio that you put it in. If I if I were this person, what I would do is I would take a look at what I want to buy, right? If it's uh, a car or house, let's just put car as an example. And I want to buy this car and it's $15,000. And I want to make sure that the savings that I put is growing over time. And let's say I want to buy this car in five years, mm-hmm. right? What I would do is I would set a certain amount every single month that I would give into like a piggy bank, right? Yep. I would say $200, $300. 
and open up a separate account even with your bank i think you can open up an investment account just like the bank megan and i worked yeah. at some people like a money market investments a money market account that's tied to the value of the u.s dollar and everything like that um but you can then put the 200 in there and then see it grow over time the problem that i have with short term is that you're not going to see much of a return over five years in yeah. those safe it so it, it's a tough question right megan do you have any ideas because honestly i would just open up a separate savings account and just keep keep adding any additional money into there right like you're not going to you're not going to see a huge return after 5 years unless you want to be risky but if you really want yeah. the house if you really want the car you don't want to be risky yeah that's my answer more so so i think the answer is in his question where he said where should i store my short term savings so my rule of thumb is that anything that's less than 5 years should just stay in a f savings account I think investing should stay more long-term, a minimum of like 10 years. Um, so if you maybe want to buy a house seven years from now, mm, that's kind of a gray area. Like maybe you could invest that, but it depends your risk comfort. Would you be okay if there happened to be a random crash like what happened in March of 2020, right when you wanted to buy your house and you can't buy it now because you lost couple thousand dollars of what you had invested to buy that house with. If you're okay with that and you're okay with waiting an additional year or two for the market to recover to then buy the house, then yeah, I mean, invest. But if you want to buy your house or car in less than five years, I would definitely, me personally, I just put it in a savings account that has an interest rate that matches inflation. Um, for example, I have a Betterment savings account that they pretty much match their interest rate with whatever inflation is at the time. So right now their interest rate is only like 0.4%. But before, before the market crash, it was almost two, it was like a 2% interest on my savings account, which is really good. So yeah, that's what I would say. Right. Another idea too, I brought this, this company up before is Acorns. And I think this is what really Acorns is made for because you can put any dollar amount into your Acorns account. So like if you wanted to allocate 200, 300 or even more, if you know, you do well at work or if you have uh, sustained income coming in, but also you can tie it to any uh, debit card or any credit card and it rounds up all of your purchases to the nearest dollar and invests it. And you can invest it in a diversified portfolio that for me last year returned 23%. Mm -hmm. So you can start out, you can say, hey, I've got a couple thousand dollars right now that I want to see a little bit of a return on and allow it to grow. You can then put that in the Acorns account and then you can say, hey, every single month I want Acorns to take $200 from my uh, checking account and I would do it as like a goal, like whatever that dollar amount is, make sure that it equals the amount of the car in five years. And then what you can do on the cherry on top is connect it to your, uh, your debit card and every single purchase you make, let's say you buy a candy bar for a buck 50, it's going to take that extra 50 cents, round it up to $2 and puts it in that account that's also gaining interest over time. Mm -hmm. That's a, I think that's probably the best strategy because it's, it's automated. You don't really see it. You don't have to keep track of it. 
But at the end of every single year, maybe when you're filling out your taxes, you can take a look at your Acorns account and see how much that's worth. And maybe you can buy the car six months before, a year before or whatever. But I think that's a more practical strategy. But again, to like a short term savings account that returns at a rate of inflation is also a great way to do it. Yep. Yeah. So it's up to you. I mean, it depends on what level of risk you're comfortable with. With that, we're going to wrap up the episode here. So if you have any questions, feel free to email us at moneyforeveryonepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Instagram at moneyforeveryone2021. And remember to always feel love and gratitude for yourself, others, and even your money.